Hello again, everybody, and welcome to The Accelerator with Michael Conniff. That's me. We are a podcast devoted to entrepreneurs, founders, startups, and the angels, VCs, family offices, investment firms that covet them, typically, or ignore them in other cases. Um, remember that this program is not a place for uh, where we give investment advice. Do your own research. Make your own decisions. These are just companies that we like and are interested in, and uh, none more so than a company called Vilto and the co-founder who is with us today, Bear Matthews. Welcome, Bear. Good to have you. Thank you for having me on here. Now, you have a you have a um, golf cap on, a Titleist hat, who are, who are listening and not watching. Um, so we have Jack Nicholas is the golden bear. What does that make you? <laughs> I don't know. I guess Jack Nicholas and I will have to have a round of golf and see what happens. The will be given afterwards. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure he's playing anymore. So this would be a good time to get him if you, if you had to. But Bear and I have a, um, a very funny intersection in that we both spent quite a bit of time in Basalt, Colorado. <clears throat> we both knew a guy named... Um, a, quite a character named Skippy Mesereau. And Barry, you actually worked for him in politics out there since Skippy ultimately became mayor. So what did you do for him? I did for a brief period. This was quite a few years ago when he was running for his se second city council campaign. Um, I oversaw some marketing and communications um, right when I was just getting out of a high school, actually. Great time. Oh, you were quite a, quite a young guy. Um, just yeah. don't tell anyone about Basalt, Colorado, the greatest little town in America. Um, but I know, don't, that's all secret. Don't, don't tell anybody. That's why I, I just told you that. <laughs> so um, so anyway, what's very interesting to me about Vilto, and you can find out more at Vilto.com um, and about Bear, is this company is um, disrupting the music and ticketing space. And why I say that, why is that interesting? Because disruption happens all the time, but this is a wonderful case, in my opinion, of the disruptor, the disruptors being disrupted by a new disruptor. So let me follow. Give me. Let me explain that very briefly. Then I'll let you elaborate there. Please. Okay. So originally this was the world of Ticketmaster, and everybody used to get their tickets from Ticketmaster and maybe one or two other places, but they really dominated. Right. Then along came um, SeatGeek and StubHub, and it's my impression they kind of dominate now. You could maybe wise me up on that. So you, in turn, at Vilto, want to disrupt SeatGeek and StubHub and others like them who are now uh, um, initially uh, in, this, in this space. So tell me how you came to, how you got the idea. And I'm, I'm curious about whether you had a particularly bad experience that said, you know, I've had enough. I'm going to do something about this because we, we've all had those, I think. So how about you? Well, I think... What's natural for both of us to understand here, Michael, is that there's a cycle in a lot of industries with very few players. And that being if you don't continuously innovate, then new solutions will come along um, alongside new technologies. And so the main problem in Tishchain right now is because there are so few players in this, in this space, um, they're allowed to sort of just rate up transaction fees, which just in turn creates harsh consumer environments. And we've all had terrible stories around that. Um, and there's a plethora of other problems that have arise too. And so over the past decade, as we've watched Ticketmaster, StubHub, SeatGeek, etc., um, operate with very little competition in this space, these, these problems have sort of compounded on themselves to the point where um, several people think it's, it's a good idea to back me to actually try and disrupt it. Um, and that's where we are today. 
Well, um, tell me about these uh, transaction fees. Um, what, what is a typical transaction fee now for, say, a ticket to a concert? Sure. I mean, the transaction fees are a very small part of this problem, but on the low end, transaction fees will run around 7%. They can go up to 20, 25%, which is extortionate. Um, yes. The industry also has a, a rather funny relationship with the secondary market, that being ticket resales, um, because a lot of those transactions go either under the table or just unrecognized. And the large problem there is that royalties associated with those transactions never get back to the original venue or the artist. And so you have tickets being sold for four, five, six times their original cost. Yeah, we, we have a name for that, Barrett. Barrett's called scalping. Yes. So, uh, I know. Uh, as I'm sure you know, I learned this, by the way, when I, I had tickets to a New York Knicks playoff game in yeah. uh, as a child, and they were playing the uh, Baltimore Bullets, a, a great game. And I, I, I had an extra ticket and I sold it to somebody at face value outside the garden. And the, and the guy, right. somebody came into the seat and it was not the guy I sold it to. And I was like, what just happened? And he said, oh, yeah, I had to spend 50 bucks for this <laughs> ticket. So the guy tripled, almost tripled his money, you know, in about 10 minutes because he had the sucker as who was me. As one should, yeah. So, right, so that's, that's free market in America. That but is free the flip market. Side to that is it creates other problems, as we've seen during COVID. Sculping on a good day. Yeah, sculping on a good day. Um, you know, everybody makes a little bit of money, whether it be the guy who first bought the ticket or the guy who bought the ticket after five resales. But during COVID, we witnessed sculping create all kinds of problems. And so now you've got no idea who's coming into your event. You've got no idea if they're vaccinated or not. Not that I'm going to get into politics here. Problems like that arise. And so what we refer to in the industry as KYC, know your customer, suddenly becomes extremely prevalent here. So so um, you mentioned that um, the transaction fees were a small part of the problem. What is the big part of the problem? The big part of the problem is actually rather fun. Um, and that's the fact that ticketing has just grown to be a rather static purchasing experience. That'd be you buy a ticket and if you're a teenage girl, you go home and you like you plop it on your memory board. Right. But if you're if you're somebody like you and I, we don't really do anything with that ticket after we've been to the event. We throw it out. Maybe we put it in a folder somewhere. Actually, I used to save all my tickets bare. So uh, I but then I eventually did throw them out. So, yes, well, but I had, I had like thousands of tickets at one point that I threw out. It's as you should, because it's a piece of memorabilia. Right. And so well, right. the translation there that we've sort of come to is tickets should be considered an asset class, both pre and post event because we've already witnessed them trading in the resale market. And post-event, we should think, we believe that they should unlock and enable some sort of fan experience, whether that be pre-sale access to future events, that being you went to see the NITS, you get a discount on the future NITS game, or they enable you access to merchandise after the event. It basically just creates ecosystems within experiences. And that's what's really special for us right now. How do you do that? Well, unfortunately for a lot of people, and we try and hide this from consumers, we incorporate blockchain and NFT technology. And that scares a lot of people, naturally. Um, basically, by enabling tickets with blockchain technology, it just means that we can track them. Um, it means that should a ticket get resold, royalties, a small penny on the dollar, will go back to the venue and the artist. Mm -hmm. And it also means that after the event, we can track who owns the ticket so that if we want to give you post-event merchandise, or some sort of special access, then we can ensure that that goes through. Um, 
it's it's sort of just turning, as we said, the static ticketing experience into a sh- social experience that you can share mm. with your family and friends. I, I love this idea, and I um, th- I'm going to sound like I'm making this up, but I'm not actually making this. Up. This is <laughs> what I'm about to say is actually true. Um, <clears throat> I had a company called Interactive Sports in the '90s, which I've mentioned on this program a couple times, and yeah. uh, we actually, I, I, it's you know, we came pretty close to inventing fan marketing because there was no mm-hmm. fan marketing. We had fan database, we had a program called True Fan. Um, we were really the first, we used to work with teams to try to identify their fans and get them into databases. So what you're doing, okay, so, so let's, let's be real. We're talking 19, let's say 95. So you're talking, you know, 27 years ago and actually, so, so it's a way of saying that, um, fan marketing is actually not that old. And, um, and I am really surprised as somebody who tries to follow the blockchain stuff that we haven't heard more about it. And I think this is really actually a very brilliant application. So how do you make money with this bear? How does this work? Well, sure. But I'm going to pause on the blockchain side of things just for a second here, because sure. it does scare a lot of people who are trying to enter the space because they just don't understand how it works. And so we've all witnessed sort of these bald apes and just these sort of like pictures being traded for tons and tons amount of money. And the interesting thing for us right now is we don't, we, we look at blockchain as an infrastructure layer. And so just as any consumer today doesn't ask how the internet works, we don't believe that they should have to ask how blockchain works, right? And so we try and hide a lot of that technology beneath the traditional consumer purchasing flows that you already know. Um, to answer your second question of how this makes money, it's rather simple to be honest with you. Um, at point of sale, we're a transactional business. And so, of course, we drop the transaction fees down to a reasonable point. Right now, as mentioned, the low end is around 7%. We've dropped that down to 1.5% because we think that's just fair. And then we made a lot of capital back in that post-event engagement. So whether that be a reselling of a ticket, we take a small transaction fee there, or um, accessing merchandise or pre-sale access to future events, we take a small percentage there. Um, Yeah, it's, it's it's just a natural cycle of engagement that, as you mentioned, fans have been going through for decades and decades. And suddenly today we have the technology to trap that. And so, of course, we should monetize it. An interesting sure. fact, actually. Please. Yeah, keep, go keep going. Keep going. Well, no, just an interesting fact to round it out to give people sort of an understanding of why this is needed is musicians, artists, sports teams, etc., make around 85% of their revenue yearly when they're on tour or when they're playing against other teams, right, on ticketed events. And so any way that you can sort of, you can tap into lost revenue potential in those margins, that being in the merchandise, in the post-event engagement, that's huge. And so that's where we sit today. You know, it's interesting. I Forgive me, I'm going to sound a little bit like an old fogey, but we, we, went, to the, uh, we went to the Cleveland Cavaliers um, in, the, in the mid-90s. Uh, they had just built a new arena where they still play basketball. And um, we said to them, let's do a promotion called Best Seats in the House. You can have this for free, Beer, by the way. This is one of one of my I'll better ideas. It. it was called Best Seats in the House. And you take a couple of the best seats in the house, which the team, of course, has control of. And um, you, you run a promotion. And every, every, every night, every game, there is a, a couple of fans or three or four fans who get the best seats in the house. And so why do you do something like this? 
You know why. You do it to get a database of fans. That's why. Right. <laughs> now, here's how primitive this was. Here's what the director of marketing at the Cleveland Cavaliers told us. He said, we sell out every night. And so that was his. And we're like, okay, um, do the same fans sit in the same seats every night? Is that no? Well, actually, no. So, like, you actually have new fans in the seat. You actually have fans take, using tickets that you don't know about, right? And they, they begrudgingly admitted that and then, you know, showed us the door because they, they just, you know, this was like 20 years ahead of its time, maybe 25. But, but I think that it speaks to something that's kind of critical to what you're doing, which is that Fans are not just in the seats. Fans are not just the ones at the venue. Tickets get shared. Tickets get distributed. T tickets get resold. And then there's all the other sales, the merchandise, the other way that, ways that Everything. fans declare themselves. So, um, but I have a really basic question about the blockchain. So forgive that little segue. Um, we'll take it. The, um, the, the, the blockchain, um, tickets are not on the blockchain today, correct? Correct. So isn't that a big problem for you or a big challenge? Well, yes, but that's why we raise funds and that's why we built what we've built. It's an, <laughs> um, okay. it, our team has been heavily focused on developing an infrastructure layer that allows tickets to be transacted on the blockchain, what would be referred to as Web3 compared to Web2. Um, now, for fans, that doesn't change anything. The consumer purchasing journey is rather static. I mean, our marketplace looks pretty much identical to any other ticketing marketplace you've ever engaged with, with a change of logo and a change of colors. Um, sure, you can now pay with both credit debit card and crypto, but that's 2022. That should be naturally um, expected. And there's a few other perks, but the, the sort of transition from tickets being held in an infrastructure layer perspective on, on protocol, basically on, on the blockchain compared to on some server in Web2. It's not a big jump. There's a few things that you have to change, but again, that doesn't really affect the consumer. So, um, but 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 you, um, do you take a ticket bought at a venue or bought online and then have through this process somehow put it on the blockchain yourself, transfer it to the blockchain? How, how do, is that how it works? Effectively, so anybody that we partner with to handle ticketing, um, what you would traditionally do is you'd go to a printing service and you'd print out all the ticket stubs and then you'd sell them physically, right? And you'd have them mailed. That then got translated into email files and you had QR codes. And now what we do, which is the next transition in this process, is something called minting. So instead of printing physically, we mint them onto a blockchain. Um, and then once they're minted, we distribute them through our services. Uh, distribute them digitally? Digitally. Um, yeah. So there's no, there's no print ticket at all? Uh, if you want a print ticket, you can have a print ticket. We actually, <laughs> we're not a big fan of printing things out just because we're eco-friendly and you and I are both from Aspen here, Michael. Um, so we actually charge like a one dollar. I would never say I'm from. I would never say I'm from Aspen beer. We're from maybe basalt, maybe from course. maybe from basalt, but not Aspen. But we'll but wait basalt. a minute. So there's an issue here, I think, um, or at least yes, something I, I don't quite understand, which is, doesn't 
one question is, doesn't the physical ticket have a lot of value in terms of a fan? And as for the reason that I used to keep my tickets, it's a, it's a keepsake, literally a keepsake. Um, it has some value in and of itself, but that does not relate to what you're doing. Is that a fair statement? I, we all know that tickets have, have a lot of value. That's why people you know, hold on to their, their ticket stubs from the World Series in 94 and 95, right? Um, but the value is in the authenticity of the ticket. It's not in the piece of paper itself. It's in the memories held with either what happened at that game or at that concert. Um, okay, I'm going to disagree with that. I'm not. I'm not trying to be. Oh, here we go. You really, you really. I don't know. You, I'm, I'm in a mood or something. I don't know why. But but it's what that. I would say is actually. So don't forget, I spent 12 years in the sports business, and I'm a gigantic sports fan. Tonight, I'll watch the Celtics. You know, play the Warriors and so on. <laughs> yeah. Um, and World Cup, and you know, whatever's on, I'll be watching it. So so I'm a big sports fan. I would say that um, the, the, there are a lot of fans out there, um, and I've seen it in their homes, who have the tickets displayed um, of big games or even, even just games they might have gone to with a son. Now, I don't want to dwell on that. I think basically you're right. It doesn't most, you know, most of the value is in the memory of the game, but I would just say not all. So you, you've answered my question. You guys um, put it on the blockchain. Do you have any agreements like that with, with teams or venues? Can you tell us about it? Yeah, um, so we've started with independent venues across the U.S. Um, the ticketing market is, is extremely hard to break into. And so Live Nation and Ticketmaster hold a lot of exclusive agreements with a lot of the larger venues, both for musicians and sports. And so in our initial journey market, it's like, okay, well, we'll work with the small independent venues across the U.S. where the pennies on the dollar really do matter. Um, and so we're working with an assortment of venues both across L.A. and in San Francisco in addition to New York right now. Um, and then we'll be rolling out some larger contracts with sports venues in the next 18 months. And what do you, is there any way that you can combat those agreements with Live Nation and, you know, the other big players? I mean, the nice thing that we always joke about is that our transaction fees are extremely favorable, but being the cheaper alternative is a very short-term solution for anybody. Um, and so the largest market sector that we're really excited about is the post-event fan engagement. That being what happens after the concert? How does that fan engage with your team, with your artist, with your label? Um, and that's, that's where our, our internal team is wholeheartedly focused. So in order to do that, um, I think that's a great idea. But in order to do that now, you have to know who the fans are. So via this blockchain right. process you will have identified the fans. And in fact, you will have identified, I think the power of this may well be in identifying fans the team doesn't know about or the or the artist doesn't know about, right? So at that point, let's say you, sake of argument, um, you end up with uh, 5,000 identified fans via your blockchain technology. You're saying the, yeah. the core of the business is kind of uh, engage, engaging with those fans, marketing to those fans. So what kind of stuff are you thinking about? That's a, that's a really good idea, a really interesting idea, but how do you do it? Well, one of the most special things for any fan is the concept of, of exclusivity, of what do I have that another fan doesn't? And so whether we identify sort of a fan profile by the purchase of a ticket um, or the engagement on social media, what's really special is that access, that exclusive access into whatever the opportunities may be. And we usually leave those opportunities to be curated by the sports team or by the artist. Um, 
but that access is tradable. And so if you like Coldplay on one day, but three weeks later, you're no longer a Coldplay fan, but somebody else really wants that access that you have in your wallet, then you can trade that. Again, we look at tickets as an asset class. Um, and so that's a fascinating market sector for a lot of basically revenue opportunities that have never been possible before. So the ticket that um, used to hang on somebody's wall or get thrown out, now it's sort of negotiable tender. That's what you're saying. So um, if I... If, I, if I'm a fan of, um, let's say I'm a, a Steph Curry of the Warriors, um, I'm, in, right. I'm in New York, but I'm dying to see Steph Curry um, or, or a great star, I assume I would go on what would affect be um, the, the, the Vilto exchange. Um, yeah. Is that, do I have that kind of right? Is that how it would work? Yeah, we'll call it something different, but I like the Vilto exchange for now. <laughs> <laughs> but but the idea is that um, the exclusivity by that that's kind of a um, um, exclusivity and access I guess is that is that a euphemism is for you get to meet the star uh, you get to meet in some effect I think what a lot of this boils down to is the ticketing market right now is run on very binary revenue concepts if that makes sense and so. For argument's sake, say that the NBA Finals go to Game 7, right? And everybody's scrambling for a Game 7 ticket. Um, one interesting concept which we've begun implementing is just as when a company goes public, you have what's referred to as basically invisible pre-IPO price floors. That being anybody can bid on the price of a, one share in a company, and there's an invisible price floor. And if you bid above it, you're still going to pay what you've bid. Um, but that's a revenue generation mechanism. And so the same thing can apply, be applied in the ticketing market should the NBA finals go to James 7, right? You would allocate 10% of the tickets available for purchase with an invisible price floor, and God knows what people will bid for those. But the revenue generation is going to be 5, 10, 20 S over what it is today. So there's and all kinds of Does concepts. anybody do that? Do teams do that? That happens on the, on the, as you said, secondary tertiary markets, but does right. does do teams profit from that? Because I think your blockchain would allow them to profit, wouldn't it? Well, absolutely. Um, I mean, one thing that we include for anybody, any venue, any team, any artist, is that no matter how many transactions occur in the secondary market, they get a flat four and a half percent royalty on that transaction. Okay, so that I'm not sure whether that sounds like a lot or a little. I think it sounds like a little, but it's better than what they get now. It's better than nothing. It's better than zero. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so let's talk just um, just um, before I let you go. I want to talk about the data a little bit. The um, the data Everybody wants you, to talk about the data. Yeah. Sorry. Um, but yeah, we did have good. a product called Fan Database 27 years ago. So I think I come by it honestly. Um, Please. And and just our notion was that if you controlled the data, the teams would have to deal with you because teams are really notoriously difficult to deal with. But I think you've probably come to the same conclusion. Um, but when you, and actually that's my question is about that. So you gather this data, you create this um, data set from your blockchain technology. Um, and so now you have, you have information about a fan. Say I use this, you know about me. You may, you may know a little bit. You may know, you know, I went to the game. That's kind of probably what you know. Will yeah. you, will you, share that data with teams? Will you share it with the artist? Is that part of the deal or does that become your leverage? <laughs> um, I'm not sure where it will make it into the deal itself, but that data is absolutely available. 
one nice thing that people don't really realize about blockchain and Web3 is the sheer amount of what's referred to as metadata, that being the micro data points that where did you engage, how did you pay, age, size, right, et cetera. Right. Um, the sheer amount of data metadata points in blockchain and Web3 compared to what we have previously in Web2 is, is unimaginable. And so the potential applications of that data, obviously, it's bad. Now, the flip side to all of this is we are built on a public blockchain. Now, you don't need to know how that works, but what that translates to is anybody, in theory, can access that data. They may not know that the data is yours or mine, but they'll know that it exists. And so there is security and risks involved there um, for which we've designed procedures around. But in theory, to answer your full question, Michael, we wouldn't be the gatekeepers of that data. If a team wanted to utilize and leverage the data, it would be publicly available to them. Okay, now now why wouldn't you want to leverage that data? That seems like a really big opportunity. Well, of course, I thought it was a long time ago. Why is why wouldn't you want to leverage it? I think I think it's just the times we're in. I mean, the whole the initial concept of, of blockchain and web three was built on the premise of anonymity and users slash consumers owning their own data. Um, the flip side to that of how it's actually applied in real life is just basically making everybody's data public and encrypted so that nobody knows whose data is whose, uh, which is kind of interesting. With that being said, I don't believe our business model needs that leverage point, to be honest with you. Um, it, it's so far it's so far outside of our generation in sort mm -hmm. of just business revenue models. Um, that it's just, it no longer makes sense. In the early right. 2000s, everybody said that data was sort of money, right? It's like it's yeah. cash on hand. These days, it's it's really not. It's 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 consumer modeling that's the most important Well, thing. I, I can tell you like what our workaround was to that, which is that um, we came to the conclusion that we would own the data, mm. but we would make it available to partners. So they, if, if, if a team, if somebody wanted to use it, um, you know, we would work with them so that they could use it, um, but that we were going to retain ownership so that as we move forward, the database would build and grow and so on. Now, I, I realize that irony, I think, I think no, the irony, Michael, is that most people who own data or most people who you might sell data to don't actually know what to do with the data in the first place. It's often so expensive to actually find some, some utility out of the yes, but tens of thousands on the other of hand, there's face, the Facebook figured out what to do with it, didn't they? Right. <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think when you say, well, it's not, you know, it's kind of not in the spirit of the times or the spirit of Web.3, that's absolutely true. But, um, you know, on the other hand, uh, Facebook was, was uh, as an example, was just going to be a nice little, you know, a nice little way to look at pictures of your grandchildren. Um until it wasn't, <laughs> yeah. and it became weaponized. So, so I anyway, I'm you know that's sort of a, um, a a segue, but but I think that there's I'm interested in that personally because I went through that myself a long time ago and sort of worked through the whole concept. Now, remember at the time, teams had no concept of their fans. They marked they did no marketing to their fans. There was zero. Right. Um, so so this is a different time. They've kind of woken up to it, and and people at least on some level, realize how important it is and also how important the players are as, you know, marketing and media companies by themselves. So it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a different world. So what happens, um, Bear, what happens 
with Vilto in the in the next um, in the next eighteen months. That's always a fun question, Michael. Um, well, we've taken the last nine months to build the product, and so we've sort of had our heads in the ground, um, grinding away. Luckily, this month, which is rather exciting for this podcast, we're ready for launch, and so we're doing full public live testing in venues, which is amazing. Um, wow! And from here, we're just scaling. To be honest with you, um, on a daily and basis, we're uh, signing. Which, tell us the venue so people can take advantage of this. Uh, well, I won't. I mean, instead of listing them off and you know, have the potential of leaving some out, I'll just say that they they can go online to filter.com and find everything available there. Fair enough, yeah. and that's V Y L T O. We've been talking to um, Bear uh, Matthews. He's the co-founder of um, a company, and I've I've got to tell you, Bear, uh, and I should it's mention awesome. this. This is the accelerator with Michael Conniff, and you can follow me at Michael Conniff or go to my website, michaelconniff.com, C O N N I F F.com. And I've got to say, this has been my favorite podcast of about 50. Um, you that say I, that every time. No, no, I, I do not. I do not. But I'm so, as you can tell, I'm so into sports and I'm, I'm also like equally into music. So it, 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 it's one of those, this subject is actually one of the ways that you can kind of do both at once. <laughs> Same subject, right? There aren't a lot of things like that, but, but no, it's just interesting to me. And I, I reached out to you because uh, really what made me reach out on LinkedIn was you're saying that uh, you were going to lower the transaction fees to 1.5%. I'm like, I got to talk mm. to that guy. <laughs> Because the, the ticketing, we started out the podcast talking about disrupting the disruptors, but right. oh my God, um, these uh, SeatGeek and, and um, StubHub and others like them, it's like the experiences I've had have been so terrible. I think I told you recently that I I went to the um, uh, the final David Byrne show on Broadway. Oh, really? Yeah. Utopia, which was great. But we ended, I, I had a hard time finding the ticket because I think... I had bought it through SeatGeek and I got it through StubHub and nobody told me that was going to happen. And I was right. like, how was I supposed to know that? I mean, I could have missed the show anyway. Also, I can't blame them totally. I'm sure it was my fault, but but it just shows you how much room there is. And I think I think your approach is really, really brilliant. And um, uh, Bear, as a fellow Basaltine, Basalt, we'll Colorado, it. right? Did I, you know, most people don't know that's what it is. It's we're basaltines yeah. and um, <laughs> one of the great towns in America. So say hi to Skippy Mesereau for me. And um, I will. And, you know, I want to I want to wish you all the, all the best. I'm really rooting for you. So best of luck. Michael, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. OK, Bear. Thank you.